Hello, and welcome to the 538 Politics Podcast. I'm Galen Druk. After nearly 20 years of war, the Taliban has returned to power in Afghanistan far more quickly and thoroughly than the Biden administration expected when it announced plans to withdraw U.S. troops from the country. New reports over the weekend showed scenes of chaos and desperation as thousands of people tried to flee the country. Today, we're going to take a look at what Americans thought of the war in Afghanistan and the Biden administration's withdrawal plan. Also, last week, we got once-in-a-decade data about who Americans are and where they live. The Census Bureau released the demographic and geographic information from its 2020 count, which we're going to dig into. Over the past decade, the country has grown significantly more racially and ethnically diverse and concentrated around metropolitan areas. In fact, a majority of U.S. counties lost population since 2010, with growth in metropolitan areas making up virtually all of the country's population gains. So here with me to discuss all that today are managing editor Micah Cohen. Hello, Micah. Hello. Also here with us is politics editor Sarah Frostenson. Hey, Sarah. Hey, Galen. And elections analyst Jeffrey Skelly. Hey, Jeff. Hey, Galen. So let's begin with public opinion on the war in Afghanistan and the Biden administration's approach. And I should say, President Biden is expected to speak later this afternoon, which will have likely happened by the time that folks are listening to this, but has not happened yet at the time that we're recording. So this was America's longest war, which began after the September 11th attacks and was largely seen as more justified than the war in Iraq. Gallup's polling showed that the majority of Americans did not view the war as a mistake as recently as 2019. However, by 2008, Americans were overwhelmingly telling pollsters that the war was not going well. So I want to begin by talking about where we are now. Of course, it's going to be some time, some days, some weeks before we get polling on how Americans are reacting to the weekend's events. But at least in the run up to this, how many Americans supported continuing the war in Afghanistan versus withdrawing troops? When you present it as sort of a black and white question, do you support Biden's decision to withdraw troops or to end the U.S. military presence or however the wording was, you generally find Americans were quite supportive, much more supportive of withdrawing. In some polls, you had as high as 70 percent of Americans or registered voters, depending on the poll again. So on the whole, I think if you look at it that way, Americans were, were ready to get out of Afghanistan. They were supportive of the idea. But it's not quite that simple. Some other polling asked a version of this question where the pollster might have asked, would you want to remove all American forces or would you like to leave a few American forces there to help the Afghan government fight terrorism or you know, wording of that sort? And in those cases, at least in a couple instances, you had a plurality of Americans who preferred leaving a few troops behind. So I, I do think it's a little complicated in that sense. It's interesting, too, that support for the war back in 2001, when we initially entered, was quite high. You know, polls at the time, particularly from Gallup, were finding 85 to 90 percent of Americans supported that war. But as you said at the outset here, Galen, you know, this is a war that has lasted 20 years. You know, it's ebbed and flowed in terms of where it has stood in the American consciousness about our thoughts on Afghanistan and thinking about that we're still there. And so as Jeffrey was getting at, I think there has been a big shift in terms of the number of Americans who said, okay, I support Biden's decision to remove troops from Afghanistan. I think the issue here, and we'll see what new polls show this week, is that no one anticipated the extent to which and the speed that democracy and the government there in Afghanistan would collapse. 
Yeah, I think it's gone on so long that I think a large part of the public has sort of lost track, lost the thread of like what exactly we're doing there. And I think you see that in polling. Gallup asked this question, for example, of is the war in Afghanistan making the U.S. safer or less safe? And it split the country almost perfectly evenly. I think it was 43% who said safer, that's disproportionately Republicans, and about 46% who said less safe, disproportionately Democrats. But, you know, there's plenty of Republicans who said less safe and plenty of Democrats who said safer. And so just for a war that's gone on so long, I think public opinion had turned against it. And more generally, I think public opinion had grown significantly more anti-interventionist since the war began. In general, putting the war in Afghanistan specifically aside for a second. So that's the context in which Biden decided to withdraw troops. I think on that terrain, he largely has the public on his side. I think what all this will come down to is how does the public respond to the events they saw over the weekend and the events they're still seeing on their TV right now. They are such dramatic images of people clinging to airplanes as they take off, children rushing towards planes. They are such dramatic images that like, you know, the first rule of domestic U.S. politics is, well, foreign policy usually doesn't have much of an influence. But I think what we're seeing over these last couple of days might test that just frankly, because it's so dramatic. I should say here, of course, we are a foreign policy podcast. And so there are certain parts of this analysis that we will leave to other folks. But it seems like a lot of the debate here is centering around not like, should we have withdrawn or should we have continued the war indefinitely? More, should we have withdrawn in the manner that we did? And as you mentioned, Jeffrey, Perhaps even should we have left some troops there? I think maybe that's similar to the way that the United States has ended wars in other parts of the world, like we've had military bases in Japan basically since World War II. What are the different kind of arguments that people are making surrounding that question? And how are those questions dividing up people at this point in time? So right now, unfortunately, I think the reality is we don't have a really good explanation for why the Taliban was able to so quickly dethrone the government and the speed at which they've been able to do it. You know, over the weekend, the Times published a number of detailed maps that showed how control of Afghanistan had changed since May 1st when troops began to withdraw. And it's really been in the last two weeks where you've seen city after city fall. But even starting in May, you saw more of the Taliban taking over rural parts of the country and just slowly encroaching Kabul. But at this point, I think what we've seen in terms of congressional lawmakers talking with the administration is they're still trying to get answers. And there isn't really one answer to pinpoint for why the collapse was so quick and steady. I mean, I think what we lose sight of in some portions of this coverage is Biden made the decision to withdraw troops, but the longstanding issues that we're now seeing come to a head have been true for a while. And I think the coverage is starting to capture that, that the forces in Afghanistan have been woefully unprepared for a long time to fight this fight on their own, which is why the Taliban has been able to gain so much ground. And I think we're going to see more pushing on that thread here in the coming days. But I think right now where things stand, there isn't a good explanation for why this has happened so quickly. Yeah, as someone who's not an expert in foreign policy or in Afghanistan in particular, it's all very confusing. You know, you see all this reporting 
that, as Sarah said, the problems in the Afghan security forces were well-known, well-documented, and were common knowledge. And yet it seems like the central intelligence failure here is in not that the Taliban was going to gain power once the U.S. withdrew, but just the speed at which it happened. So I don't know what explains that. I don't know why intelligence agencies thought it would take longer. I don't know that they did think it would take longer. I think what we're seeing right now is a lot of reporting coming from sources who have their own dog in this fight. You know, you've seen reporting based on military sources essentially saying, we told them and they wouldn't listen. Uh, You see reporting coming out of the White House saying, hey, this was an intelligence failure. It's not our fault. It's very confusing. And that confusion makes it even harder to predict how the American public will respond, I think. Yeah. So the question now is essentially, we have the polling from before this past weekend, how Americans were thinking about withdrawal, how Americans were thinking about the war writ large. I mean, do we have any historical context or any data that can help us make sense of how Americans might respond to what happened over the weekend? I mean, my suspicion is that what usually happens with issues these days uh, in our very polarized electoral environment is that people will largely move into their camps, especially because a lot of this comes down to elite opinion. Americans are not as well-versed on foreign policy. They don't necessarily have default positions because of ideology or whatnot in many of these uh, many questions related to foreign policy. And so in a lot of cases, they will follow what elites from their party are saying. And of course, Republican criticism of Biden has been pretty withering in the last few days. He even had former President Trump coming out and criticizing him and saying, if they'd followed my plan, things would have gone better for this withdrawal. So I suspect you will see more Republicans disapproving of Biden's handling of Afghanistan and anything related to that. And so On the other side, Democrats may be somewhat critical of Biden on this particular issue, but I suspect that you're not going to see much movement among Democrats and whether they approve of Biden overall. So in that way, that's sort of my inkling with what we know about elite-driven opinion on foreign policy. But thinking about like a past example, you know, something that's been thrown around a lot and got so many articles is a reference to the fall of Saigon in 1975 in South Vietnam or what was then South Vietnam and Gerald Ford was president. And we looked back at some of the historical polling on this, and there's not really any change. Now, granted, we had less polling back then by comparison to today. But nonetheless, basically, Gerald Ford's approval rating overall was largely unchanged uh, in a Gallup poll right before the fall of Saigon at the end of April 1975 and in early May when they polled again. So I think trying to get a read on whether this is going to have a big impact on, say, Biden's overall standing, that would be a point in favor of saying, hey, it may not change it all that much at the end of the day. I think that's fair, Jeffrey. I do think, though, the difference between Saigon and what we're seeing happen now is in the sense of the Vietnam War at that point had, for all intents and purposes, sort of ended, except for that final withdrawal of people in the embassy. But it also occupied such a different space in the American culture at the time, particularly with protests, the wild unpopularity. It's still one of the most unpopular wars we've ever fought as a country. And I think here with Afghanistan, whether fairly or unfairly, Biden will be the face 
of this war in terms of removing troops from the country. And again, I think you're right in questioning what that actually will mean for him electorally, because lest we forget, you know, yes, as you were saying, like Republicans are criticizing him, but very few are saying, well, we should have remained in Afghanistan. Like that's the Liz Cheney of the party. And it's really just her banging that drum. Most Republicans as you had pointed out, Trump had said, I wanted to withdraw from Afghanistan. He's just saying he would have done it better. So it's like the heart of the matter. Withdrawing isn't really contested. So I think you're right that this actually might not have that much of a consequence in terms of political fallout from Biden. But I do think it's different in the sense of like, he will own this more than Ford owned the Vietnam War. I think Americans think of that as Johnson and, and Nixon and not thinking that through Ford. I think Jeffrey and Sarah are right to focus on elite cues. We've already seen Republicans go after Biden, you know, a lot of them, frankly, disingenuously because they were sort of supporting withdrawing as of three months ago. But that's par for the course for both parties, really. You attack the other side when you can. So we'll see that. One thing I'm really interested in, though, is to what extent Democrats just defend Biden at all costs? versus, frankly, acknowledging the failures, not that this was done, but in how it was done, because that could have an outsized effect on how then Democratic voters, independent voters respond. You know, I think we saw time and time again during the Trump administration that even when it would make a less cynical person blush, we saw Republicans defend Trump beyond all realms of logic and and reality, and it was just about defending Trump. And the reason they did that is because it works politically. A story or a scandal or whatever tends to be more politically damaging if you have criticism, not only members from the opposing party, but members from your party, right? So to what extent do Democrats criticize Biden, I think is an important question here. The other thing is you can rarely go wrong in American politics from just saying this will likely become partisan. And that's probably the best bet here. But two cautions I would have on that is is what I was talking about earlier is just the sheer drama of what we're seeing and the tragedy of what we're seeing, both on its own, that tends to affect people, but also like, frankly, just to be blunt about it, news media is gonna show that footage of people storming that plane over and over and over and over and over again. And that could have an effect. The other thing is you could see a cumulative effect in the Afghan story combined with other stories. So the events in Afghanistan are happening as the Delta variant of the coronavirus surges in the U.S. There were like a couple other more minor negative, quote unquote, stories about the Biden administration over the past couple of weeks. And so you are already seeing sort of like capital N narrative pieces about the Biden administration hitting stormy seas, et cetera, et cetera. And narrative has power. So if the media decides that's a narrative, I think you could you could see that build and build and, and maybe we would see some effect from the public. And I mean, I would add to that right now, Biden's approval rating is at the lowest it's been his entire time in office. Like this isn't coming at a good time for him in terms of overall American sentiment. One thing I was looking at in preparation to this podcast was what happened after the fall of Saigon and Vietnamese refugees coming to the U.S. and what perceptions were there. Because I've had a similar thought, Micah, around the footage we've seen coming out of Afghanistan 
And, you know, one thing I found in a poll conducted by Time magazine just a month after Saigon fell in 75 was that already just 29% of Americans said that we had an obligation to help the Vietnamese refugees, even if that meant they would compete for jobs. So Time framed it in the sense of, do we have a moral obligation? Here's what it could mean for the economy. And just 29% of Americans felt that we did it as a country. 41% said that didn't describe at all how they felt. And so I kind of wonder to what extent, given this humanitarian crisis we're seeing now, that that will actually resonate with voters. The question that Time also asked was, should we just move on? And that was what 68% of Americans said at the time. They said, let's put Vietnam behind us and not worry about who was to blame and who was not to blame. And so that's an incredibly, I think, pessimistic and sobering possibility for what could happen here. But I think it's one we can't ignore. Yeah. One question I have related to all of this, I think we established that Americans were generally supportive of withdrawing or at least severely limiting our involvement in Afghanistan. And we had a podcast not that long ago where we talked about how much Americans care about foreign policy writ large. And the general conclusions were they care when there are a lot of American casualties. They care when there's a draft, sometimes when it's expensive, although in this case, this was a trillion dollar war and taxes were not directly increased as a result. So maybe Americans didn't view the efforts in that sense. But apart from foreign policy, I'm curious if this is the kind of event that shapes perceptions of Biden because of the preconceived notions people had of who Biden was, right? An empathetic person, somebody with a lot of experience in Washington, someone with a lot of foreign policy experience, like outside of whether or not Americans specifically care about what happens in Afghanistan, could this shape views of Biden in different ways, more like intangible ways? I mean, that's sort of why I was talking about as squishy a concept as it is, the narrative. I think in general, actually, we have found that scandals, and this isn't really a scandal per se, but let's use the term loosely. Well, it could certainly be shaped that way eventually, like congressional lawmakers were calling for investigations into how this happened. Sure. Okay. So if this turns out to be like the scandal of how this was managed, scandals in general, though, have more of an effect actually when they play into preconceived ideas about a candidate or a party, when they reinforce those ideas, right? Rather than cut against part of what As you were saying, Galen, this cuts against a lot of preconceived ideas about Biden. He did have more foreign policy experience, as he liked to say, than anyone since Eisenhower or whatever the quote was. Will that mean voters will sort of like throw all that out the window now? I don't think so. I think the bigger factor is, frankly, what I was saying before, just how the media responds. I think because this cuts against those things and because there were a few other sort of like negative threads floating around, I think it's likely the media will braid those together and we end up with a few weeks, let's say, of really poor coverage for Biden. Now, as Jeff has written in contemporary politics, modern politics, everything is constrained by polarization. So even if we see a deterioration in Biden's approval rating, we're talking one, two, three percentage points. You know, if we saw his approval rating drop from 50, where it is now, to 47%, 46% even, that would be a significant drop in modern politics. I think it would take sustained 
media coverage that was really critical of Biden for us to see that. And I think it would take elite Democrats criticizing Biden for us to see that over a sustained period of time. Otherwise, it's horrible to say, but like, it depends what happens on the ground, frankly. Depending on what happens on the ground, there's a world where in a week, two weeks, three weeks, most of the mainstream U.S. press is back to talking about the Delta variant and returning to schools and the economy and inflation. So I think a large part depends on on what happens on the ground, which maybe is as it should be, actually. Yeah, you know, maybe that gets to the idea that it's sort of, what is short term here? Is short term a month or two? Is short term the 2022 midterms? You know, it depends on, on how you would measure time in that way. But I think that there's the potential for a short term downtick from this for Biden and his numbers. But I do wonder about longer short-term ramifications. But then even beyond that, when you think about, you know, if he does run for re-election in 2024, does this create an opening for attacks on national security? And that might depend on things that we cannot begin to predict. But I do wonder about, you know, the Taliban retaking Afghanistan, creating a a shelter for potential terrorist groups, just the origin of, of how we got into all this mess back at the beginning of the millennium. So all that's just pure speculation. We have no idea how any of that's going to pan out. But if you're thinking a little longer term, a little longer time horizon, that is a danger that lies out there with this decision in that the Taliban retaking Afghanistan is is not good for national security. How not good? Tough to say, but I don't think anyone would say it was a good thing. <laughs> I was going to make that point as well, Jeffrey. You know, each year Pew asks voters, what do they see as the most important issues in their choice? And this is from earlier this year. And they were allowed to select multiple issues, but 63% said defending the country from future terrorist attacks was an important issue to them. And so, right, it's way too early to understand what is happening in Afghanistan, how that plays into global terrorism and what that could mean. But I do think that will increasingly become a talking point. You're already seeing that from a lot of Republicans now who are saying with the Taliban in control of Afghanistan, China will have better relations with the government now as well um, Pakistan and other parts of the world. And so I think because on the flip side, when you looked at a poll Pew did earlier this year about America's image abroad and Biden really having done a lot to restore how, again, mostly allies in that survey, but still how the world thought of America when it came to diplomacy, there's no question that this helps tarnish that in a way. And it's too at this point, hard to say how that will ultimately play out, but I think it is a setback for the U.S. on the global stage. After 20 years at war, it all collapsed within two weeks, and that's not at the foot of Biden's administration. That is something that has been true of multiple presidential administrations and our involvement in Afghanistan, but I think it does hurt the American image abroad and hurts that aspect of Biden that I think he had cultivated, particularly in his run for president. You know, the Pentagon Papers and then the Afghanistan Papers more recently, one common theme in both of them was this criticism essentially of presidents who knew the war was quote unquote unwinnable, but kind of didn't want to be the guy who quote unquote lost it and so kept the status quo. And so given that and given just the American public's anti-interventionist leanings generally, that movement in that direction over the past couple decades, I just think that makes it really hard to 
predict how this will play out. Because you have that on one side, and then as Jeff and Saren said, on the other side, you have these horrible, tragic images. On the other side, you have just the fact that this makes Biden and America look bad. Americans don't like that. Americans don't like, quote unquote, losing. So you have just a bunch of countervailing forces here. It's really hard to say which will win out or, or if partisanship will just swamp everything. It seemed like we had reached something of a bipartisan consensus on anti-interventionism. Of course, Trump ran in part against the war in Iraq and against George W. Bush, honestly, in a way that was pretty dovish compared with recent Republican presidents. And we've seen also in poll after poll that in addition to that, on the Democratic side, Democrats generally report themselves as being less interventionist, like less interested in going to war than Republicans. Where does this leave us now? Does this experience create this political opening where Republicans become more hawkish again? Or does watching the Afghan government crumble so quickly after 20 years of war make people even less interventionist? I mean, I think it's possible that you could see a greater partisan divide open up on security issues, in part because Biden's in the White House. And so Republicans could be reacting to a Democratic president and what's going on in a Democratic administration. And also hearing from Republican leaders who are taking you know, this opportunity to attack Biden on national security. So it is possible that you could see that. And you know, as you pointed out, Republicans are already a bit more supportive of military intervention compared to Democrats. And, you know, in a lot of these polls that we've been talking about, about withdrawing troops, you saw Republicans less inclined to support it, though in a lot of those polls, you had majority Republican support too. So I I think it's a little complicated in the sense you do have a sort of anti-intervention strain with Trump, but then at the same time, you have neoconservative, strong military interventionist types, the Liz Cheney's, the Tom Cotton's, who want to see a strong military and potentially use of that military. So I I do think it's complicated, but I think what's important here is that the times when military conflict becomes a more important issue, that foreign policy becomes a more important issue is when there can be something of a partisan divide over that issue. And so I think what will be interesting is if that divide does develop, does that actually bring this issue more to the forefront because there's that split? As long as it's sort of a little more muddled in terms of a partisan divide, maybe it's less resident because that divide doesn't exist where there's a lot of clashing over it. All right. Well, on that note, let's wrap up this segment. And of course, we will keep an eye on how things progress. And when we get more information about what Americans think about all of this, we will let you know. But let's move on and talk about the new census data. But first... Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts. Now streaming only on Disney Plus. My name is Taylor. Welcome to the Eras Tour. Experience Taylor Swift's record-breaking Eras Tour. Swift, the Eras Tour, Taylor's version, with four additional acoustic songs. Now streaming only on Disney+. Plus. 
Last week, the U.S. Census Bureau released demographic and geographic data on the more than 330 million people counted in last year's census. It showed some pretty clear trends in terms of population growth being concentrated around metropolitan areas and the country becoming more racially and ethnically diverse, largely driven by big growth amongst Hispanic and Asian Americans, and more people now considering themselves more than one race. So there are a lot of details that I want to dig into here this data for what we do at 538 is super important. But I want to just begin by hearing what stuck out to all of you in this, you know, once in a decade collection of data. Sarah, kick us off. Yeah. So two big things stood out to me. The first was that the American West, so as a region, has now flipped to majority minority. And it's the first region to do so. But The South isn't that far behind. And in fact, by 2040, the entire nation is expected to follow suit. So that was one thing that leapt out to me. And then the second thing I thought that was particularly interesting was the share of people who now identify as multiracial. You know, in 2010, that was 3%. But by here in 2020, it had grown to 10% of the population. And so I think that raises all kinds of interesting questions about how will the census continue to collect racial data that allows people to discuss disclose what ethnicity they're part of and how they even think about race and their own identity. I mean, I think we're seeing an increasingly diverse country and diversity in ways in which it's not just that someone is Black or Asian American. There's a whole host of ethnicities that they might be a part of and identify as. Yeah, I wanted to stay on that for just one second, because this was a kind of a data collection question as well, which is that we saw the number of people identifying as multiracial increase by almost 300% in the past decade. And the Census Bureau was warning that it might not necessarily be that the population at its core changed that quickly, but that the way that questions were asked about race and ethnicity on the census could have prompted more people to report more than one race. What's going on there? Right. So there is more options now in terms of how you can identify. But actually, the AP had a really interesting story over the weekend that was kind of couching that phenomenon of why we saw this big uptick in the popularity around genetic testing in the U.S. and elsewhere. And it's kind of talking about how Americans can now access their history and their ethnicity much more easily than they could before. Maybe some privacy issues, but setting that aside, the point of that article was that how Americans are thinking about their race is getting more complex and it's changing. You know, not me personally, but someone might identify as white, but then also have Native American ancestry that they identify with. People, you know, are increasingly in relationships that are interracial and there isn't a stigma associated there, whereas there was as recent as the 1960s. So there's all this evolution. And to your point, Galen, the data collection process is changing too. So it's easier for Americans to identify with multiple racial backgrounds. And I think that could be a trend we see continue to grow here in the country, as especially as the country continues to grow more diverse as well. Just to add kind of actually an interesting personal anecdote, I was actually an enumerator for the 2010 census, which was a fun little window into how this whole thing works. Back after college, I knocked on doors in my hometown and and talked to people. And one of the things that I found that was particularly interesting, and I think gets at this idea that if they made subtle changes to the questionnaire that can really affect things, when I would speak to Hispanic families, I would ask, are you of Hispanic origin or not? And they would say, yes. And then I would inquire about which Hispanic origin, you know, where their ancestors came from. 
But then you would ask the separate race question. And I often got a lot of confused looks because they more or less thought they had just answered that question. I'm Hispanic. And before the 2020 census, there was actually some movement and discussion at the Census Bureau about combining the Hispanic origin question with the race question to make it more straightforward. They kept them separate in the end, but they did make adjustments to some of the answers and and I think protocols about how to ask those questions. And that could influence the data at the end of the day. But I do think that even knowing that we have to be cautious about overrating an increase from 3 to 10% as that big of a jump, at the end of the day, I don't think there's any denying that the country is more diverse. And therefore, I think there would be an expectation of more people who would identify as of multiple races or ethnicities. Yeah. And the press conference the Census Bureau put on just like unveiling all this, they, they actually hinted a couple times that they still are eager maybe to move to combining the two questions. It was interesting that a couple of the gentlemen speaking sort of hinted at that a couple of times. The other change they made, which Jeff and Sarah were getting at, is I think they expanded their ability to code write-in answers. So I guess previously in 2010, it was like something like only the first 20 characters of a write-in answer they could capture. I'm not sure if 20 is exactly right, but some limited number of characters, where now in this most recent census, it was 200 characters, I believe. So it just enabled them to get far more nuanced, far more detailed in terms of how people identify. So this brings up something of a question, which before we dig into any of the other data that we learned last week about the accuracy of the census period. We talked recently on this podcast about how the American Community Survey was essentially not going to be released from 2020 because of difficulty collecting data. There was, I think, some anxiety in the run-up to the release of this data about whether or not the 2020 census was accurate for similar reasons because of the pandemic, for example. After seeing this data, was it in line with where estimates were? How are people processing this idea that maybe the 2020 census wasn't accurate? I think it sort of depends on how macro or micro you want to go here. I think the larger trends nationally and in a lot of states were sort of what you expected, more racial and ethnic diversity, metropolitan areas growing with rural areas largely stagnant or even shrinking. That falls, I think, largely in line with what people expected. Now, there are going to be, I haven't dug fully into it yet, but I know that there are going to be examples where we're going to find some interesting differences between the estimates from the American Community Survey and the actual population counts. But I will say that every census has struggled with undercounts of certain populations. This has been a problem for basically the entire existence of the census and missing people. It's a big country, and we have this constitutional requirement to get a headcount. Um, you can't just use survey estimates to do the job, even if those actually might at the end of the day, in a lot of cases, be more accurate than actually trying to count every single person. But I think the macro trends were what we expected to a large extent. Yeah. And I think some questions did bubble up. Like you said, macro level, this seems in line with what people expected. Micro level, there were certain parts of the country that we did expect had been growing faster than the census showed. There were other parts of the country, like New York City, for example, where the American Community Survey had missed approximately half a million people. The census essentially reported that half a million more people are living in New York City than the estimates showed previously. So there were, of course, unique circumstances like that in particular parts of the country. We heard from you, Sarah. Jeff and Micah, I'm curious what other data points stuck out to you in terms of how you're understanding what America is, who we are, and where we're headed. Yeah, one thing that really stood out to me is not only is the country getting far more diverse, which I think we knew, 
it's getting far more diverse everywhere. I think the census data showed that 19 out of 20 counties have become more diverse. About 98% of Americans live in a county with an increasing number of Latinos. About 90% live in a county where the Asian population is on the rise. The country is growing more diverse, but that's not limited to big cities or mid-sized cities or suburbs of cities. It's really happening almost everywhere. The other thing that really stood out to me, and this is kind of a new thing, the Black population fell in majority Black neighborhoods, but rose in neighborhoods where Black people made up less than 10% of the population. And again, that jibes with that larger picture of the whole country getting more diverse, widespread. But that was interesting to me, that the Black population is starting to creep up, not just in these neighborhoods that already have a strong Black community, but in areas where there isn't a big African-American or Black population established. The other thing is like the white population, I think as a lot of headlines showed, declined for the first time, but it did grow in certain parts of the country and it grew in places which were already majority white. This isn't a new thing, I don't think. We're largely talking about exurbs and outer areas of metro areas. But that was interesting to me, that the white population is increasing in some of these already really white exurbs, kind of where the, the, the metro areas kind of start to bleed into rural areas. Yeah, I mean, for me, we expected big metro areas to grow and for rural areas to, to not really grow much or be fairly stagnant. I mean, I think just looking at vote totals over the years, you know, you could sort of see that and you can look at rural Appalachia and see fewer people voting even in a higher turnout election in some places because, you know, the population has shrunk in a lot of counties in a place like West Virginia, for instance. But to have the stat be 52% of counties or county equivalents had fewer people in 2020 than they did in 2010 was pretty startling, just that number alone. And I think it really spoke to the fact that you know, they talked about this being the slowest growth in a census, I think, since 1930, over a 10-year period. And the fact that the growth was very much concentrated in metropolitan areas and the great swaths of the country, the counties mostly shrank in population, maybe not a lot, but they didn't even grow a little bit, many of them. That really just points, I think, to the potential for sort of, when you're thinking about politics, greater urban-rural battle. And it came up a lot, obviously, when Donald Trump was elected president. And I think it's obviously a lot more complicated in race and gets into a lot of this as well. But the idea of like rural decline and people in rural areas feeling that decline, I think that lack of growth and even shrinking population, it's genuine. There is a genuine part of it that is a feeling of the place I knew is declining and people are moving away. They are not staying. They try to get out. You know, I think those population numbers spoke to that, at least to some degree. And that was sort of a connection I immediately made when looking over the numbers and watching the census report. Yeah, some of those industrial cities in the Midwest, in the Mid-Atlantic, saw the biggest population losses. You know, I was reading a couple of the places like Saginaw, Flint, Detroit. Actually, was just in Detroit area in Michigan for a wedding. Congratulations, Jenna and Zach. But places like that saw big losses. Gary, Indiana, Youngstown, Ohio. It's a story that we're well familiar with, as Jeff said, but those saw big losses. The other thing that stood out to me, I should say, as someone who grew up outside Philly is Philly, 
was the fifth biggest by population city in the country. It has now been bumped down to sixth by Phoenix, which I think saw a bigger population increase than any other city. So as someone who grew up near Philly, I was sad to see that. But the five biggest cities are now New York, Los Angeles, Chicago, Houston, and Phoenix. I really thought Houston was going to overtake Chicago. So I I have a lot of crow to eat. I've been talking a big game. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I want to talk a little bit about what we mean by metropolitan areas are basically the only places in the country that are growing. And I should say, the census reported all 10 largest cities in America continued to grow. And Phoenix was the fastest growing large city in America, but actually that by percentage, some of the biggest growth was in smaller cities. And one thing that I think we should talk about here is that according to the census, 86% of the country lives in a metropolitan area. So when we say that metropolitan areas are growing, we don't just mean booming urban cores and gentrification and redevelopment of downtown areas. The exurbs that you mentioned earlier, Micah, are included in those growing metropolitan areas. And so I think I've seen in response to the census some quick analysis, that, oh, the country's growing so much more urban, et cetera. Like, this is good for Democrats. This is the future they always planned for. I think we need to like take a second and be a little more specific about what we mean by growing metropolitan areas. We mean that that's where 86% of the country lives, which means it includes all kinds of people like politically and ethnically and racially and so on. It's really suburbs. When the census says fast growing cities, most of what they mean is a suburb of a larger city nearby. I think the point you're getting at Galen too is like there's some real different geographical trends here where we're seeing a lot of this suburban growth in the South, in the West, which is now majority minority. Whereas in the Northeast, we actually saw some shrinking in terms of some of the suburban areas, same in the Midwest. And I'm thinking right now in particular about redistricting implications. We know that Republicans control the majority of map drawing lines here in 2022. However, in a state like Texas, if most of the rural areas, which lean red, lost population, and most of the urban areas gained population, and they have leaned more democratic, particularly suburbs in recent elections, that will pose an interesting challenge for lawmakers because the districts in a state have to be roughly the same size. So you can only draw the line so many ways. And I thought that was an interesting takeaway from some of the changes we've seen. Now, interestingly enough, some majority Black districts in the South have actually lost population. So that opens up a whole different can of worms in terms of what those maps might look like. I'm thinking of Alabama, parts of of Georgia, Louisiana. But I thought the Texas example, and just in terms of the rural loss and suburban gains and what that could mean for the redistricting process was interesting. Yeah, the release of this data kicks off the redistricting process. Like this is the data the states were waiting for in order to get underway. So I am curious how other people saw this shaping that process. I do think the consensus from smarter people than me seems to be that it was generally good news for Democrats. I don't think we're talking about a game changer here. Republicans control most of the redistricting process in most states. That's still the case. But the growth in cities, the growing diversity, I think makes it a little harder for Republicans to draw these districts in favorable ways. And in some areas, like the fact that New York City grew, I think, a little faster than people anticipated might save Democrats a seat there, for example. But we're talking at the margins here. You know, if anything, really, if it makes it harder for these 
districts to be drawn in favorable ways. Where that could have an effect is, you know, the more egregious you have to get in order to gerrymander these districts, maybe Democrats can have a little more success fighting some of them in court, where a lot of this will be decided. But I know, Galen, you're actually our, our gerrymandering redistricting expert. What do you think? I mean, it does force map drawers to move people around. I think a good example of this was Maine, where one of the congressional districts that went for Biden had grown by about 6%, while one of the congressional districts that went for Trump had shrunk. And so you have to move voters from probably the bluer district, more Biden-favorable district, into the Trump district. Now, who ultimately gets to decide which voters those are is up to the map drawers. And you can probably draw that map in a favorable way if you have the power to do so, such that it doesn't change the partisan makeup of those two districts. But in some cases, it probably will force more Democratic-leaning voters to be drawn into what was a more Republican-leaning congressional district. So this data does shape how the maps will be drawn. But like you said, it will be marginal. And that ultimately, probably what's more important is who is deciding which voters get moved. At the end of the day, it is still not too difficult, I think, to draw some very ugly lines and then hope that they survive a court challenge. But at the end of the day, there's sort of strategic decisions that will be made in part because of these population numbers. You know, thinking about a state like Texas, uh, Republicans control the line drawing process there. Maybe because of where population growth is, they will decide, you know what, we should draw another really Democratic district around Austin so we can pack a bunch of Democratic voters in there. So maybe in that sense, they don't go for an extra district in their line drawing process. So it's sort of that thing, getting to Micah's point about it being at the margins. If you're worried about in four to six years, maybe a district being more competitive, if you draw it somewhat Republican leaning, maybe you decide, you know what, we should just draw another vote sink and sacrifice a district in the name of protecting the other ones. And you could see that also in a place like maybe suburban Atlanta. There's been talk about what happens to the 6th and 7th congressional districts there on the outskirts of the city. Currently, Democrats control them. Maybe they're going to draw one together. Republicans could be really aggressive and actually try to make them both Republican-leaning. But maybe because of the population numbers, they decide, you know what, we should draw two Democrats in with each other and not try to eliminate both of those seats because it might pose a risk down the road for us if we do try to just get rid of them entirely. So it's those sorts of little strategic decisions by the line drawers that I think these population numbers are particularly interesting for, obviously. Yeah, and just to support the idea that it is a bit muddled, friend of the podcast, Dave Wasserman over at the Political Report made this point. If you look at like the 25 districts that grew the most, they're disproportionately Republican, held by Republicans. If you look at the 25 districts that decline the most, they're disproportionately held by Republicans. So it's like, there's not a clear sort of like, this gives Democrats some huge new advantage in redistricting. As we've said, I think it'll help on the margins. I think it'll force map makers on the Republican side to be a little more creative, let's say, but nothing beyond that. Micah, here's some trivia to really throw a wrench in all of this. Do you know what the fastest growing metro area in the country was, including both small and large metro areas from 2010 to 2020? Wait, I thought it was Phoenix. That was the fastest growing large city. But of all the metro areas in the country, including small metro areas. Wasn't in North Dakota? It was the villages in Florida, the retirement community. Oh, that's right. Yeah. So not even just like 
booming populations of, I don't know, young people or whatever. This is a retirement community. And of course, this is a congressional district that is Republican held. So things are not always as clear cut as, like you said, they may seem to be at first blush. What I was remembering was North Dakota's McKenzie County was the fastest growing county in the nation. There's like an oil boom there. So they're adding a lot of population. This doesn't mean I like you, North Dakota, but but you did have that distinction. <laughs> Well, of course, as we mentioned last week, we're going to track the redistricting process as it happens and as this data gets put to use. And of course, I am sure we'll also be talking about this data in the coming weeks, months and years as we cover elections going forward and what those districts look like. But for now, let's leave it there. So thank you so much, Jeffrey, Sarah and Micah. Thanks, Galen. Thanks, Galen. Make sure 538.com slash redistricting. We have an awesome redistricting tracker. You can find all our coverage there. Absolutely. My name is Galen Druk. Tony Chow is in the virtual control room. Claire Bidigari-Curtis is on audio editing. And Emma Riley is our intern. You can get in touch by emailing us at podcasts at 538.com. You can also, of course, tweet at us with any questions or comments. If you're a fan of the show, leave us a rating or a review in the Apple Podcast Store or tell someone about us. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you soon.